The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste to all of you and good evening. Tonight we are going to continue with a series of lectures that has been interrupted for a while. There were a few urgent topics that I wanted to debate with you in the beginning of this season. And uh, now I'm getting back to a subject which we started in the previous season. And uh, in this previous season, we talked about, we are making the analysis of a very great text in yoga, the Geranda Samhita. The Whenever you start getting confused, because the yoga in the world, 90% of what is taught under the name yoga in the world is just the gymnastics and the fitness and the very soulless materialistic thing, you always have to get back to the basics. You always have to turn to the sources, like this Hatha Yoga has not been invented by me, it has not been invented by my teachers, has not been invented by the teachers of my teachers. It is going back in history to fundamental sources. And if we want not to lose our direction, if we want not to forget who we are, what is this yoga, what are we here for, what are we actually doing, we always have to look at the mother texts. We have to look at the sources, at the origins. Even this Hatha Yoga which is presented very often like a stretching, like a gymnastics, like a contortionism, like a calisthenics, like a modified aerobics or something like this, is having its sources in the tradition. These sources are three, four, five tantric texts. They belong to the tantric tradition. And out of them, three are more proeminent, three are more widely known. And those widely known texts from which all the Hatha Yoga is coming, they are the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, the Shiva Samhita, and the Geranda Samhita. Out of these three mother texts, like anybody who wants to be a good teacher in yoga, anybody who wants to go deep in yoga, and anybody who wants to practice and even perhaps to teach Hatha Yoga, is actually preoccupied I think they are talking about some light and they talk about this one, but probably they don't work anymore. This one works, but the rest don't. So, um, as I said, everybody who is preoccupied of Hatha Yoga at a basic level wants to look through these texts. Here in Agama, I was asked during the last season to give a commentary on these three fundamental texts, and I started with the one which is the most of them. The Geranda Samhita is written by a great yogi called Geranda in the end of the 18th century. So it's a relatively recent text which benefits from all the experience and lineages of centuries and centuries. And uh, this Geranda Samhita is written, Geranda proves himself to be a more, let's say, civilized yogi, because some of the yogis of India, they were real barbarians, they were real savages, like they would go the full Monty, 
and they are wild people, and some of the texts which they wrote are full of this wild spirit. Geranda is a more tame one, so it's easy to start with Geranda Samhita. Another characteristic of Geranda and of his text is that because it's written later, it had the time to systematize. It's close to our days, relatively close to our days, 200, 210 years uh, before us at this time. And um, because of this, also it is very systematic. Geranda, we often complain here when we teach yoga, that the Indian yogis and the Indian culture in general, because it's based on emotions, on bhakti, on a lot of other mystical things, coming from the right brain hemisphere, it's very non-engineering like. We often complain that the, the yogis from India would have benefited from some German engineers to go to systematize yoga and to avoid using the same name for different things and five different names for the same thing and a lot of other, other things which makes that yoga, tantra are wonderful traditions but they are not very systematic. They are, it's, it's difficult to unravel, to follow the thread through the tradition of yoga. Well, Geranda is one of the rare yogis who is semi-systematic. He is a bit of an engineer of yoga. And this Geranda basically teaches yoga to his disciple. It's put under the form of a dialogue. If that disciple really existed, and this is the rendition of a dialogue, the guru teaching the disciple, or if this is just a pretext and the disciple is imaginary, just to make the point, it doesn't matter. The text is written like a dialogue between Geranda and his disciple Chanda Kapali, and Chanda Kapali is asking him, show me the science of yoga, teach me about the science of yoga. But of course, if he was a disciple, it means he already learned about the science of yoga. So then why ask about it? Well, he's asking about it so that you can hear about it. It's for the sake of the future disciples who will benefit from this listing. So Chanda Kapali is asking about yoga and Geranda accedes and says, okay, I will teach you. He teaches in a rather systematic way. He has divided the subject into six portions and he has divided the yoga into six levels and he starts, it's one of the rare texts of yoga which starts with the Kriyas and he describes 80% of the science of Kriyas in yoga is described in the Geranda Samhita. And then he goes to the second chapter where he speaks about the inner force, the inner strength, when he speaks about asanas, how do you get, and he describes 32 classical asanas. It's the third longest list of asanas described in traditional yoga. Hatha Yoga Pradipika, a much older text, describes only 16 asanas, for example, just to make the difference. And in then in chapter 3, where we are going to start today, because that's where we left it in August, in last season, in August last season, we had the last satsang about the Geranda Samhita, and there we stopped somewhere in the middle of the chapter 3, where Geranda is now speaking about a uh, very powerful, exceptional range of techniques in yoga, which are called mudras. The mudras of yoga are a very powerful thing 
because with kriyas thing are things seem to be 75% a physical thing with the asanas very often they can be turned into gymnastics and fitness and it's very easy to miss the point but the mudras are an association of positions of the body contractions of different areas and organs of the body uh, breathing patterns such as pranayama and others and a few other elements and the mudras therefore become very powerful technologies generally many mudras as some of you have seen last year in this series of lectures which i don't know if it's totally uploaded uploaded on the net or not yet maybe the administration is awaiting for all the cycle to be completed and then they will be uploaded we also intend with the help of karma yogis like you to make a transcript of it and make me turn it into a brochure that you can use you can have for your own use so i said in the third chapter about mudras the techniques called mudras are techniques which are highly unusual here and there in the chapter on kriyas patanjali i'm sorry geranda he said that if you massage this point if you take water through your nostrils if you do this and this one of the collateral effects of it besides the fact that you eliminate phlegm and mucus and all these banal trite physical things which are of great importance in the health and healing system but they are not everything then geranda says if you do this and this you are going to stimulate some inner function and you are going to start seeing auras like even in the first chapter on kriyas geranda describes yoga techniques which are reaching way way more than just massaging a muscle or stretching something or cleansing the stomach or producing i don't know uh, what mucus elimination like he says clearly this is going to give you clairvoyance so you can see energy fields and auras in the asanas the same some asanas are saying this one is healing all the diseases of the stomach and of the digestive tract but then some of them also have effects which are flabbergasting that's why it's very very important for whoever tries to understand yoga to read these texts because when you read such texts suddenly a veil is falling off your eyes suddenly you realize that yoga is not a banal gymnastic as some silly people try to present it it's not a stretching when you are describing that you do paschimottanasana and kundalini can rise through your spine and it can prolong your life to 150 years of age if all the other conditions are fulfilled you are talking about something magic mysterious paranormal out of this world then you realize wait a second these asanas are way more than just a stretching of the tendons or something like that that's why when you read such books it brings you back to your spiritual childhood it brings you back to a place where your heart and soul are fresh it brings you back to a place where you look on yoga and discover the magic of yoga you discover that there is much more and in the third chapter the third chapter is so full of this because the techniques described in the third chapter are some of the most flashy some of the most spectacular techniques of all yoga and because of this these techniques have many effects upon kundalini the mudras from chapter 3 have many effects upon kundalini upon paranormal energies they give many many spectacular effects and that's why this chapter number 3 is very beautiful for those of you who come to my satsangs for the first time in all these years 
the starting will be a little bit abrupt because maybe you would have wanted to hear the others. On the other hand, I also say it, and it's the case tonight, when in the chapter number two, Gyaranda has listed 32 different yoga asanas, and for each one of them, he says one or two or three verses, it becomes like a long litany. This is Paschimottanasana, which does this and that. This is Utkatasana, which is good for this. Like, okay, now this becomes a bit tedious. Like, going through such a text is sometimes a little bit, it's not like you are reading an adventure novel, you know, a flashy piece of literature or something exciting. It's a little bit like you go through a dictionary. It's like you go through a repertoire, but it has this... It's a reference text after all, but it has this advantage that it shows you how yoga really was. In the West, when yoga came to the West and some people were tending to promote this gymnastics yoga with the late BKS Iyengar bringing up yoga like a stretching, uh, you know, old-fashioned yogis looking at the book of BKS Iyengar, they said it looks like a butcher's shop, this book because it's only about tendons and gluteus maximus and muscles and backs and like is this what yoga is like shivananda was not like this yogananda was not like this ramakrishna was not like this like what's this guy talking about that he turned yoga in a butcher's shop you know so uh, in the moment when yoga started coming to the west after in 1932 or 33 a professor from the Paris University, later moved to Chicago University after the Second World War, he published the first PhD on yoga. Then yoga started coming up. There were some very good authors in the 1920s, 30s. Sir John Woodruff, Arthur Avalon with his Serpent Power, uh, others and others, Yogananda with his autobiography of a yogi, Julius Evola, Jean Marques Riviere with his Tantric Yoga, and other authors who published good books, good quality books. Even W.Y. Evans Vance with his Tibetan Book of the Dead and uh, yoga, uh, the, 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 the Tantra of the Great Liberation in Tibetan Yoga, and so on. So, yoga started coming up nicely, scholarly, like a metaphysical elite thing. And in this trend, even, for example, one of the earliest yogis, western yogis, who learned from some great teachers. I'm talking about the eminent American yoga teacher Theos Bernard, who is so eminent that most of you almost never heard about it. Everybody heard about Ashtanga, nobody heard about Theos Bernard, who is much, much more important than all the Ashtanga done in the last 40 years put all together. They don't reach to the knee of Theos Bernard. You know? And Theos Bernard, in his book, Hatha Yoga and experience with Hatha Yoga, he does an amazing thing. He, he learned from his teachers, that's where the origin of yoga is. And when his teacher is teaching him the headstand, or the shoulder stand, or the Paschimottanasana, Theos Bernard is always going to the scriptural reference in Geranda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and he says, for comparison, this is what the traditional text says about this. And then suddenly, Paschimottanasana is not just a boring stretching of the back. Suddenly, Paschimottanasana is the real deal. It comes from, the, from Geranda. It comes from 
other and other of the great yogis uh, of the history, of, of the tradition, and there you can make the connection. It is said in the occult circles that was, that's what I learned from my first teacher in yoga many years ago, that Theos Bernard, because he showed yoga which looks so easy, like you do Paschimottanasana, but because on the same page he put the Geranda Samhita or the Shiva Samhita quote, and he said, this is actually what Shiva Samhita is. And I tried to do it in this style. And first day I did one minute. Second day I did two minutes. Third day I did three minutes. Then I did it two times three minutes. Then I did it three times three minutes in the day. Then, when I, uh, then I increased to two times five minutes. And like this he managed to do ten minutes, twenty minutes of Paschimottanasana. Not like a crazy gymnastics, but like the real yoga. And what I learned from my first yoga teacher, and it was consistently sustained by others, is that, for example, Theos Bernard, because he wrote that little priceless book about his experience with Hatha Yoga, he paid karmically because he was accidentally shot. He went in India, it, a riot happened, and a stray bullet hit Theos Bernard, who had nothing to do with the riot, nothing to do with politics, but the great yogi simply said, this man has opened the golden book for, a, for the foreigners. Then the foreigners could see that yoga is not just yoga. When you take it back to the root text, then it gives you the spirit of it. And that makes it all different. No? Paschimottanasana is Paschimottanasana is Paschimottanasana. You can learn it from the book of BKS Iyengar. You don't need to come to Agama. But when you come to Agama Yoga, you are learning it with the spirit, according to this. And then Paschimottanasana becomes something else. Becomes completely different. Because yoga without spirit, yoga without concentration of the mind, yoga without bhavana, yoga without enthusiasm and creative visualization, creative imagination, yoga becomes dead. Yoga becomes flat. Yoga becomes heartless and soulless. That's where comes the great importance of studying these things. Remember, there are people in the yoga tradition who claim that Theos Bernard, Heinrich Zimmer, uh, Julien Tondriot, and a few others, they paid with their lives because they took upon themselves terrible amounts of karma simply because they wrote these things and made them public to a world which is ignorant. Those people were the pioneers of teaching true yoga. That was the real yoga. Then, when these other epigones came, making a billion dollar industry out of some fitness and stretching, they didn't really teach yoga. They taught a surrogate. They taught a watered-down version of it. That's why, even when we go through a more tedious text like this, it's old-fashioned, Indian, taking it little by little, step by step, we need to have this patience. And I recommend to any one of you who wishes to really absorb the spirit of yoga, to sooner or later read the basic texts. Here, I'm giving to you my own translation. It's not that I translated 100% from Sanskrit, but I used the 
eight or ten translations which exist in various languages of the world of the Garanda Samhita, plus superimposing it with my knowledge of Sanskrit and therefore seeing what word is used in what context and for what. And I created the translation which is basically coming from the standpoint of Agama, like trying to give this clarity, this uh, precision of the teaching that we have. And of course, Geranda Samhita is a memento. Geranda Samhita is a memorizer. That means Geranda never intended to teach yoga through a few pieces of paper. Geranda is talking to his pupil, Chanda Kapali, and he's telling to him, uh, remember the Vajroli Mudra, the Vajroli Mudra, which is like this and like this, and it does that and that. But he does not claim that by describing it, he teaches it. It's not an initiation. It's just a remembrance that Chanda Kapali, 20 years later, when he looks through the handbook of his teacher, he says, oh yeah, and here is Vajroli. I haven't done it for 20 years, but actually, uh, na, 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 yeah, I remember it because there are 20 things which he learned by mouth, by word of mouth from his teacher and which are not written here. So the techniques taught in Garanda Samhita, they are not supposed to be a full initiation. Garanda himself says, this should be kept as a great secret. This should not be lightly passed to somebody who is wicked, who has no devotion, who is this and that. And therefore, Garanda himself says, don't imagine that I'm spilling the beans completely in here because this paper could fall in the hands of anybody, especially today in the day of printed press. It could literally go in the hands of anybody and then the secret of Geranda would be revealed. So Geranda himself is keeping it half esoteric. The techniques are just mentioned and it's good for you to report them to what you know and to see many things which are awaiting for you. Chapter 1, I spoke about the Kriyas. Chapter 2, I spoke about the Asanas. Chapter 3, I spoke about Mudras. I spoke already about, about 12 or more Mudras out of 25. Geranda has promised that he will explain to his disciple 25 Mudras. Some of them have been done last year, and as I said, because these are satsangs, these are public discourses, and sooner or later, if they are not uploaded on the Agama site, they will be certainly at some point or another, and thus uh, it's not a secret. You can go listen to those lectures, absorb that. Right now I am presenting to you the continuation of this text. I finished in August in the chapter 3 with the shloka number 44, the verse number 44, which was concluding the description of a gigantic technique which we teach here in the 16th level of Agama practice, which is called Yoni Mudra, one of the fundamental beginner techniques for teaching the rising of Kundalini Shakti. And uh, the mudras are not always in the best logical series. Even Geranda was not a German engineer, and he didn't bother after he finished the text to take it and rerun it again and reshuffle it. Like it was good enough. It's done, and my inspiration is on this piece of paper, and that's it. In my opinion, having a bit of an engineer in me, although not German, uh, I am simply saying Geranda could have ordered the techniques better, following from weak to strong, from simple to complex, 
from uh, sat uh, from gross to subtle there are different ways of doing this uh, geranda is speaking in an apparently illogical way there is not a logical sequence in the techniques why this is coming after this and why later on he comes with ashvini mudra which is such an elementary technique that we teach even in the first level that people should squeeze their anus when they do the tadasana and so on so um, geranda is not necessarily he's just simply pouring them out on paper not necessarily in a logical or scholarly order that's why bear with me we are going through the mudras some of them are great mudras powerful kundalini yoga technologies and some of them are small trinkets of mudras still very valuable as you are going to see so the next in my order now finally i'm ready to go in the text of tonight we are in chapter three at the shloka number 45 and we start with a technique which in the original sanskrit text is defined as vajroni mudra although its original name as the text comes back later and mentions it is actually vajroli mudra but again in sanskrit some letters are easily changed with each other like t can change with d uh, d can change with l and r and uh, i'm not going to explain tonight why because these are simple rules of sanskrit grammar sandhi how a letter proceeds from another letter it's because of the pronunciation part like where in the mouth you put your tongue when you pronounce those consonants and many many other things remember that sanskrit is a very playful language and and glitchy slippery because sometimes letters can be changed and the meaning remains the same although the words looks different but any sanskritologist would understand that this word is just a playful variation of that word so sanskrit is a peculiar language in this way it requires a special kind of understanding of mind so the, this technique is called vajroni mudra as a variation to the name vajroli mudra it's a very powerful name because vajra means diamond oli means like olamdita it means going up so it's the energy it's the mudra which rises up like thunder like lightning so it's a pretty powerful name and it seems immediately to refer to the sublimation of the sexual energy and to a sort of a flashing rising of kundalini like a powerful explosive rising of energy the description is as always confusing sometimes these descriptions without a teacher who actually shows you it's they can be really really confusing like it is possible that to say stretch your arms and catch your toes and so on and then if you stretch your arm and catch your toes in the front it's paschimottanasana if you do it overhead it's a variation to halasana and if you do it through your back it becomes danurasana and in sanskrit describing it you can't really understand if the guy is talking about halasana or danurasana or something for example direndra brahmachari a very great yogi who from whom i took some teachings he was who is one of the fathers of the 3ho this yogi bhajan so-called kundalini yoga in north america uh, direndra brahmachari when he describes halasana he actually speaks about danurasana like very severe confusion of very 
beginner asanas, Danurasana and Halasana, they are among the first 20 asanas that we teach in this school. We teach them in the first level intensive, both of them. They are very basic, very emblematic asanas. But the funny thing is that one of them can be mixed up for the other in description, in Sanskrit, although physically they are as different as heaven and earth. One of them is an extension on Manipura, and the other one of them is an introverted practice in Ajna Chakra. So the same with them, don't expect that you can, of course I'll try to explain, not to tease you, but again, this is not an initiation where I can give you, you just get a hint of some goods to come. Do we teach Vajroli Mudra? Yeah, we teach it in the 19th or 20th level of Agama in our program of Kundalini Yoga. So most of these techniques are actually being taught, but when they are taught, they are not taught just like this. This is the scriptural reference, they are taught in full detail with the practice of it. It's not a teaser, it's simply because I could not comment Geranda Samhita without going through a whole range of yoga techniques, some of them which are beginners, some of them which are highly advanced. Vajroli Mudra is more in the advanced powerful uh, level. It says in the shloka number 45, place the palms on the ground, raise the legs and the head in the air. This is a position where the person stands with the legs up like this, so it's a highly acrobatic posture. But of course, it's much more than the posture because it contains pranayamas, bandhas, which are not spilled clearly by Geranda here on purpose. Anybody who has learned Vajroli Mudra, when you read this, you'll remember, ah, Vajroli Mudra, yeah, I remember it. But it's much more than in the paper. The paper is not meant to describe it. The paper is just meant to ring a bell to remind about it. So put palm, place palms on the ground, raise the leg and the head in the air. This awakens the Kundalini Shakti, gives long life, and is called by, it's called Vajroli by the sages. In the title it's called Vajroni, two lines lower it's called Vajroli. Again, these things are permitted in Sanskrit, so the Munis call this Vajroli Mudra. And then for the effects, it goes eulogic, it goes ecstatic. Shlokas 46, 47 and 48, they describe the effects of it. This is the highest yoga. What? Geranda Samhita is a kindergarten kid and he gives unworthy praise. Like what would it take for a great guru of the tradition to speak about the technique of yoga, a mudra, to say this is the highest yoga and it gives liberation to the yogin. No less than liberation, moksha or mukti, which is the supreme ideal. It's like when Kundalini reaches Sahasrara and stays in Sahasrara. So Geranda, without any hesitation, he described it briefly and he says this is the highest yoga and it gives liberation to the yogin. This beneficial yoga, like he speaks about it as it's yoga, but of course this beneficial mudra gives perfection to the yogin. Here, as well as in many future shlokas, you are going to see that Geranda uses often the word siddhi, that this gives perfection. And this is a very ambivalent word, which I guess Geranda uses on purpose, because it always creates double entendre. In yoga, in Sanskrit, when he says this thing gives you siddhi, it can be read in two ways. It means it can give you paranormal abilities, which are called siddhis, paranormal powers, what I described last week in my satsang, and it can also mean perfection 
like spiritual perfection. Sometimes people who have become enlightened, they are called Buddhas, they are called Jivan Muktas, they are called this and that. But sometimes in some traditions from the south of India and from the north of India, such people are called Siddhas, perfected beings, human beings that have reached perfection. But their perfection is not that they can levitate or that they can turn invisible. Their perfection is that they have reached the knowledge of Atman and they have reached the state of Samadhi. So their perfection is more like a spiritual perfection. This word is ambivalent. Because if you meet a person and somebody says this person is a Siddha, you don't know if that Siddha is a hypnotizer, a hypnotist, or if that Siddha is a Ramana Maharishi and an enlightened being. Only the context may sometimes show which meaning of the word Siddha is used. Here it simply says it gives liberation and this beneficial yoga gives Siddhi to the yogi. Understand what you want. Vajroli Mudra is actually a part of a set of three multiplied by two mudras, the famous Oli Mudras, which are famous mudras for subliming the sexual energy, for making possible the retention and control of the sexual energy, for obtaining a lot of things which are also paranormal things, like they are a bit on the magic side. So if Geranda is talking here about spiritual things or simply paranormal things or both, in an ambivalent language, that's up to him. He likes to talk in ambivalent language. Many, many yoga texts like on purpose this twilight zone where things can mean one or two or three things at the same time. This yoga, again, he calls a simple technique from yoga. He calls it a yoga. He says this is a yoga in itself. This yoga bestows Bindu Siddhi. Here it's a city, a well-known city. The Bindu city means the perfect control over the sexual fluids. Menstruation in the case of women, sperm in the case of men. So Geranda says, Vajroli Mudra gives perfect control. He gives Bindu city. Any man, any woman is interested in that. Learn to the point where you study the Vajroli and actually the full set of six Olis. And then you are going to have a formidable weapon for dealing with this. So this yoga bestows the Bindu Siddhi, and when that Siddhi is obtained, what other perfection or Siddhi cannot be attained in this world? Here he expresses between the lines a very powerful yogic belief. He says, if you get control over your sexual fluids, what else is there that you cannot obtain in this world. Basically, he says, the man or the woman who controls their sexual fluids can reach pretty much anything in this world. There is no limit. Like, it's obviously that Geranda considers him this a cornerstone, a moot point. You know, like, if you do this, then what to say about the other things? Other things become peanuts when you do this. It's a walk in the park from here. It's all downhill from here. And therefore, it's a very powerful statement inserted here, which gives you the opinion of a great yoga teacher from more than 200, 250 years ago. He says, it helps you get the Bindu Siddhi, and if you can get that, then what other perfection cannot be attained in this world?
Like that is the foundation. Therefore, re-evaluate again your own control over your own sexual fluids. That's a powerful thing to think about because Geranda says it all starts from there. From there, it becomes possible. And in 48, in the last of them, he says, the practice of this mudra makes simultaneously possible great pleasure, bogena mahata. Boga means pleasure, but here is mahata, great pleasure, like orgasm and, of course, ecstasy, and perfection in this world. So he spoke about liberation, and now this is typically a tantric angle. No Vedantin will ever speak about a yoga technique which gives you, which gives you great pleasure and perfection or siddhi in this world. Because those, for a Vedantic philosopher, those are completely useless and a waste of time. But a tantric guru will say, we're talking about spirituality. This is the highest yoga. It gives liberation to the yogin. And in the last verse, he will say the practice of this yoga of this mudra makes simultaneously possible great pleasure and perfection in this world. Bhoga and yoga at the same time. Only tantrics dare to put these two words together in literature. Normally, yoga and bhoga or bhukti and mukti as parallel words are considered to be incompatible. The people that have fun will go to hell and the people that are ascetic, they will reach nirvana and salvation. It's not possible to have tons of fun down here, they say, they think, and at the same time to taste immortality, because like these two things are controversial to each other. The tantric tradition is the first one that 15 centuries ago and more, it has said bullshit. This is the opinion of some masochistic, narrow-minded people, who think that only by torturing and punishing themselves, they will deserve the love of God and immortality. And it's a nonsense. That's not the way the universe functions. So Vajroli Mudra, which is described here truncated, is not only Vajroli. They are all, um, it's a very powerful technology of subliming the energy. And it goes both into enlightenment and Siddhi and satisfaction. And this is one of the mudras which is strictly related with sexuality. If I would be, because it's about the sexual fluids, Bindu Siddhi is mentioned clearly here. But as I said, Geranda is a very tame yogi. Geranda is not going, uh, you know, in the fast lane. The same Vajroli mudra described in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and in the Shiva Samhita, there you are going straight to the point. It says the yogi who does this can put his penis, his lingam, inside the yoni of the most voluptuous, sensuous woman and his bindu will not flow out, like he will not ejaculate. Even if he has sex with a woman that is like a volcano, he still can, because of Vajroli Mudra. Like, oops, there they spill the beans explicitly. Like, What's this mention about wild sex in an orthodox text of yoga? You know, it means the yogis did these kinds of things, and these things were talked in private in yoga circles. Geranda doesn't go there. He is a bit more tame, and although obviously he mentions Bindu Siddhi, and he knows what he's talking about, 
he would not be too explicit. He is very discreet about this. And those who know, know. And those who have been taught by their guru, have been taught by their guru. And those who don't know, they wonder, like, mm, I wonder what he is trying to say here. And how far is he willing to go? But other yoga texts are, again, much more wild and explicit than this one. For example, in this issue with sexuality, which in India in the last 10 centuries, it has always been an embarrassing, the last eight centuries at least, it has always been an embarrassing, hushed down subject and not mentioned very willingly and very openly due to cultural and ethnic regulations and social limitations and idiosyncrasies and all the other things pertaining to those cultures. Enough of this. This was the description of Vajroli. Let's continue our marathon through the techniques. And here, Geranda comes to a technique which actually in the Agama Kundalini program is the first one that is taught. If you level make it to the level 15 of Agama teachings, that's where the Kundalini program starts. And the first of the great mudras and technologies which is given for Kundalini is the Shakti Chalana mudra. The very name of it says what it is. Shakti is Shakti and is Kundalini. It means energy. And Chalana or Chalini means to stir up. It's exactly like you beat a cobra over its head and the snake hisses and stands up aggressively. Or it's exactly like you have a smoldering fire and you stick a stick into it and agitate it. And from the embers, a fresh flame fire is gushing. You are stirring the fire. That's Chalana. So Shakti Chalana is like stirring up a snake or a fire, and it means stirring up Kundalini. It means getting Kundalini started. Shakti Chalana Mudra in uh, true practical Kundalini Yoga is the one that should have been taught first, really, because all the Kundalini starts from that level and on. Of course, those of you who studied Shakti Chalana Mudra here in Agama, this description, which is pretty long, like it takes 11 shlokas or 12 shlokas, is beautiful. But when you are going to see what is being said, you are going to say, really, you know, when I learned it in uh, the hall, they told me a few tricks which made it possible. Those tricks are not here. Like Geranda will never put those tricks on paper, simply because it has never been the intention of the great yogis to put it on paper. Why? There are so many pitfalls. Kundalini can move in the wrong way. You might not be able to channel it properly. Kundalini can go more to the left or more to the right or get stuck in the perineum or in your belly button area or this or that. If you are a smoker, a heavy drinker, a big meat eater, if you are having psychological emotional traumas from your childhood because of sexual abuse or frustration or a million other things, if a lot of other things are not done properly, this process can become extremely harmful and the whole thing can go astray. And it's like the Tower of Pisa. You know, the more it gets inclined, the more it's probably is going to fall one day. Now, exactly the same is with this Kundalini work. Either it's done right or if it's done wrong, it goes from bad to worse. And then things are, you are doing Kundalini Yoga in a state of heavy depression may increase your depression tenfold and then after your yoga session you go and commit suicide <coughs> because life is becoming too heavy and you can't take it anymore. 
and it's all due, I don't want to scare you because this never happens in Agama. We know the rules of the game and how to work with it. But what I'm trying to say here is uh, such things cannot be taught on the paper because you never know on the paper how the people who read this are, how balanced or imbalanced, pure or impure, prepared or not prepared they are. And then instead of reaching something good, you would reach some damaging effect. That's why it's never been the intention of yogis to put it 100% on video, on audio, on paper, and just to sell it around the world to make it available. There will always be some things in yoga which bear a mark of responsibility, and yogis are doing that. So this is with uh, a thing like Shakti Chalana Mudra. Here, what Geranda makes out of it, either you have studied it in Agama or not, or you'll study it next month or next year, you are going to see, of course, what the difference between a paper and the practice is. Shakti Chalana Mudra, starting with the shloka number 49. The great Kundalini, the energy of the self, it's called in Sanskrit Atma Shakti. What a beautiful definition of Kundalini. The Kundalini is ultimately the energy of the self because it is the secret of creativity, of genius, of spiritual enlightenment. It's an energy which has its roots so very deep, it's not just about some movements of energy. So the great Kundalini, the energy of the self, the, of the Atman, sleeps in Muladhara Chakra. All the traditions describe this potential latent condition. She has the form of a serpent coiled three times and a half. This association with the serpent may be sympathetic in India, where it's full of cobras and other snakes, so the simile is pretty farm life type. But in the West, it got a negative connotation because the snakes were more rare, not totally rare, but more rare, and they were associated very often in, in Judaism and Christianity and Islam. They were associated with the devil, with evil. And that's why it's a ridiculous thing that the yogis speak about the serpent power. And it's like the method to rise your level of consciousness. It's the method to obtain paranormal perception, awakening, and spirituality. And in Christianity, the serpent power will sound like the power of the devil. Because the devil is the serpent, is the snake. And it's like the yogis are black magicians. You know, it's very easy for Christian theologians who are dogmatic and fanatic and you know, totally intolerant to anything else which is not their Bible, it's very easy to twist it and to say, oh, those people are heathens, those people are pagans. Look, it's in their own books that they speak about the power of the serpent. They were, yeah, but the symbol is completely different and it means something completely else. And it, it is not a statement that the yogis are cryptically stating their allegiance to the devil because they use the serpent power far from that. These are just, this is the Tower of Babel. You know, when people's languages got mixed up, then, you know, people, one says one thing and another one hears some other thing, whatever they want to hear. So it's the same here. This simile with the serpent, it's simply because it's like a latent energy, like you would have something in a, in the bulb of a thermometer and then when it gets hot, the column the colorful thing rises in the thermometer. And it's like a snake which starts moving up. No, but if we would compare it with a thermometer, which did not exist in that century, so the comparison was impossible. But if you would compare it, 
then you would say, okay, this simile is more tolerable, is more sympathetic, it's more fun. It's all there is, you know, it's how, what you, how you create symbols. In India, for a reason or another, the yogis thought that comparing it with a snake is fun. And they did it. For other people, it's a spooky image. And the serpent coiled three times and a half. We explained this in our lessons about Kundalini. Why the yogis say that Kundalini is coiled, of all things, three times and a half. Why not three times? Why not four times? Why not six times and a half? What's this bizarre three times and a half? It has a meaning. And if I would start explaining those meanings, I would lose myself into details here. Just please remember that there is a detail which is explained. Kundalini coiled three times and a half refers to the three worlds of the manifestation, Bur, Buvax, Vaha, and then it refers to the transcendental nature, showing that Kundalini has access to all the three worlds of manifestation, to all the three basic levels of manifestation, and it can take you even beyond and a half, it can take you beyond to the spirit as well. So it, there, is a, there is a metaphysics, there is a symbolism in all these things. So okay, he simply informs that in the tradition, Kundalini is depicted like this latent energy in your root chakra. 50. So long as or as long as she is asleep in the body, the jiva is only an animal. And true knowledge cannot arise even if one practices 10 millions of yoga techniques. Please understand. I, I have always loved Hatha Laya Kundalini Yoga because these are resembling with what I studied when I was young. Physics, science, natural science. Like the explanations are given technically and very clearly. Here, Geranda says one thing which is said in other places of yoga, but maybe not so radically. At least Geranda puts it on the table very clearly. He says, as long as Kundalini remains latent in the body, the jiva, the jivatman, the individual, the yogi, the individual soul, is only an animal. In Sanskrit, that's called Pashu, cattle. And we have Shiva Pashupati, Shiva who is mercifully guiding the Pashu, the cattle. Like Pashu means to be ignorant and not prepared for spirituality. You are still in slumber, in spiritual slumber. So Geranda, without any hesitation, says, as long as your Kundalini is still asleep, you are just a Pashu. Like the difference between Pashus and Viras, that is the next step, the heroes, the practitioners, the difference is Kundalini. And he says, and true knowledge, like spiritual realization, who am I, cannot arise even if one practices 10 millions of yoga techniques. That simply says, the key for unlocking the efficiency of yoga is Kundalini. Yoga done without Kundalini will not reach far even if you do it every day. Tens of millions of yoga techniques. That becomes dry. It becomes sterile. The actual secret is that as soon as you get Shakti Chalana, as soon as you get Bhavana in Kashmiri Shaivas, as soon as you get Kundalini, things are moving. A famous author of Kundalini in India, who was actually, he personally was not a great teacher 
and he wrote a few really stupid things. That's why I don't recommend his literature, because it's a mixture of smart things and stupidities as well. But uh, among the smart things which Gopi Krishna, because that's who I'm talking about, uh, some among the smart things which Gopi Krishna did is the title of one of his famous two or three works where he speaks about Kundalini, where he says Kundalini, the biological basis of genius and enlightenment or, some, or something like this in the human being. Like even Gopi Krishna says it clearly. If there is no Kundalini, there is no paranormal, there is no enlightenment, there is no transcendence, there is a weak level of practice. Kashmiri Shaivism says the same. It, has, it says, as long as you have not reached Shaktopaya or Shivopaya and you stay on Anavopaya, for those of you who did Kashmiri Shaivism, if not, you'll study it this year or next year whenever you catch. In Kashmiri Shaivism, they say the same. As long as you didn't reach to the Bhavana, to the Shakti level, you are still in kindergarten yoga. You are still in very superficial yoga. Therefore, and now you are going to ask me, but Swami, we say that, uh, I don't know, Rumi or St. Francis of Assisi or St. Teresa of Avila, just to give a female name as well, they have reached enlightenment. Does this mean that actually without knowing these people activated their kundalini? Because they couldn't have reached God and enlightenment, says Geranda, without kundalini. But these people never did kundalini yoga. Is it possible to, act, to activate it by something else? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what kundalini say, yoga says. Kundalini exists even when it's not called kundalini. Like Christian fathers of the desert, they experienced that if they had great faith and devotion, they could go like this and pray to God, and after one hour their body would become stiff and like crossed by shudders of energy, and it would become like you are electrocuted with thousands of volts, and your body feels like a pillar plunged in the earth. It's like you are a tree rooted in the ground, and you are standing like this, and you are stiff, and energy is flowing through you like you are a pillar of light, like you are a lightning rod. The energy of God and of heaven flows, and you go in an ecstasy. Those people activated their kundalini in prayer by doing tadasana for one hour, two hours, three hours, so yes, Francis of Assisi and Teresa of Avila and Rumi, they had their kundalini activated. Only their kundalini became activated mostly through bhakti, through devotion, through bhakti yoga, and through a few other things which they did. Their devotion was so colossal, their love of God was so great, their surrender and other things were so big, that eventually they started, they started, and it started happening in prayer, and they never bothered to stop and to say, what is this thing which is happening to me? And then somebody would have come and tell them, you know, in India, they call this thing which happens to you Kundalini. And oops, it's the power of the snake, so maybe it's the devil inside you or something, you know. This confusion has never been created. These people have said, this is the grace of God. This is the gift of God. God is pouring in. This is the Holy Spirit, you know, and so on. They called it by whatever name was fitting with their religion and with their tradition. In fact, it was a manifestation of Kundalini. So yes, starting with Buddha and finishing with St. Teresa of Avila, 
everybody got their kundalini activated. This is the beauty of kundalini yoga. Everybody who got to the divine consciousness must have had their sahasrara open. There's no way to go around sahasrara, even if you don't call it sahasrara, even if you don't mention a wheel of energy around the head. Still it's sahasrara. It's exactly like some of you would be upset that the liver has been discovered by some Buddhist guy from China, and you would say, I would like to live my life, but I don't want to mention the liver because the liver is a heathen discovery. No, every human being has a liver, either you like it or not. Every human being has a kundalini, every human being has got a crown chakra, and they manifest always at the same level of energy and in the same way, because these are technical things. Kundalini Yoga is not a religion. Kundalini Yoga is an engineering of the human being and it tells you what is really happening. When people are praying and they feel stiff with prayer, it's good old Kundalini which is activated in them. That's what's happening, you know. So as much as you try to go around and beat around the bush and run around the block, eventually you get to the same simple technical pieces of the Lego game because the human being is like a Lego game. It's made of some things, and those things like the liver, or like the crown chakra, or like Kundalini, are simply inevitable. That's why it's so refreshing to think in terms of yoga, to understand the human beings through chakras, resonance, Kundalini, and all these things. Because you always understand, this person is telling me, that they did I don't know what, and suddenly they were hot and fiery and radiant, and they could sit naked in the snow and melt it. It's Manipura. It's Kundalini Chakra rising to Manipura. Period. Anybody who can do that at the same level of intensity will experience the same effect again and again. Tibetan or not Tibetan, modern or ancient, from the future or from India, it doesn't matter. The human being is built exactly in the same way and once you press the right button and put the right mechanism into action, the same thing will happen again and again. That's the, for me, that's the technical simplicity and the technical beauty of yoga, and especially of this Agama Yoga, Tantric Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Yoga with Energy Chakras and this, because it explains things in a straightforward way without any religion. You know, when Kundalini is waking up, we don't need to speak about the grace of God. Of course, it's a beautiful thing when you are a mystical person and when you surrender and for you Kundalini is coming like a free gift from God that it awakens. It's a sense of communication. It's like your father in heaven nodded to you, approved of you and it makes you feel safe, loved, protected, secure, <coughs> accepted. But ultimately, we are talking about pushing a button in the human being and releasing a mechanism. That mechanism is... So, Geranda is very precise. He says, as long as Kundalini is asleep, the Jiva is only an animal. Like, you cannot rise to the level of the higher practitioner, and true knowledge cannot arise even if one practices 10 millions of yoga techniques. Of course, he exaggerates, because if you practice 10 million of yoga techniques, Kundalini will arise at some point. Perseverance, devotion, Steadfast practice is always rewarded in a way by grace. So, of course, it's a deadlock here. But he means, just to make a point, he says if really this leap 
if this click doesn't happen in the human being, then you are knocking at a locked door, you know, which will never open. You are banging your head against a wall and nothing is going to happen. That wall is not going to give in ever. So he makes you pay attention, saying it's important that your practice goes to a strong level. 51, exactly as I said, as a door is opened by a key, so by awakening Kundalini through Hatha Yoga, the door of Brahma is unlocked. He calls God Brahma, it's a pretty simplistic way and name, but leave it like this. So basically he compares it with the door. He says it's like you are lacking the key to the door. The key to the door of God is Kundalini. You don't awaken Kundalini, you don't go anywhere. You say, but some people did. No, some people earned so much grace that in the last minute, like Buddha under the tree, his Kundalini woke up. Are you not surprised that one of the strange images of Buddha is that Buddha meditates and there is a seven-hooded snake protecting him and the kindergarten Buddhist legends say that there was actually a naga, a snake, and because he saw that Buddha was so devoted to the practice, one day there was a rain, and then the lovely snake just wanted to make like an umbrella over the head of Buddha to protect him from the rain. Like a guy who stayed in the jungle for 20 years could care about the rain anymore. It was not about the rain. And funnily, it's a snake with seven heads. Like anybody who knows Kundalini Yoga knows what that symbol means. No? So it's, this is kindergarten. That story with the snake which protects Buddha is for the uninitiated. It's from the peasants from the villages to give them a nice myth. But for the yogis, it means that when, Kunda, when Buddha meditated, his Kundalini raised above his head, which means in Sahasrara. So it's perfectly conversant. It's perfectly, uh, it dovetails, it fits. All these things must fit or else it means that something is totally inappropriate there. So he simply says, yeah, even Buddha and even Teresa of Avila, they had an awakening of, of Kundalini, but because they were not Sanskrit from India, they didn't know that that thing in India was Kundalini and that it was the awakening of Kundalini. But it was anyway. Gives here some funny procedure which is very interesting to supervise. This is how a yoga technique becomes really peculiar. When you'll study the Shakti Chalana, you'll see that these are very small things and they apply to a very particular thing. 52. Covering the navel with a cloth. Actually, what they mean is putting a piece of cloth around the waistline because there is something about the kidneys and this area which can become a bit weak and some people of some temperaments need to protect the lower back from the cold and so on. So covering the navel, but in the text the word nabhi is used, and nabhi in Sanskrit means the navel, but they don't mean the navel, they mean around the navel. Covering the navel with a cloth, and otherwise naked, indoors and not outside. Interesting, it says this technique is better practiced indoors. Let him practice the Shakti Chalana. The cloth should be one cubit long and four fingers wide, white and a fine texture. Keep this cloth fixed with a waistband, Kati Sutra. Basically what is meant like, first of all this cloth, a cubit is about the length of an elbow. 
it's a qubit measure from Europe. There is a special Sanskrit word which I have here, which only if you want to go into Sanskritological details. So it's a, it's a piece of cloth, and then it is fixed around the waist. It's like two pieces of cloth. The truth of this is that some yogis were practicing some herbal applications to support a little bit their Manipura chakra. This piece of cloth, what is not said here, that it is soaked in some herbal medical tea, and then it's put on the skin to be absorbed directly through the skin in this area, and it is strapped around with another piece of cloth, keeping it around your belly button. Uh, it's something, obviously, for strengthening Manipura, because Manipura helps when the Manipura is strong. It helps in this Shakti Chalana process. So it simply says, keep this cloth fixed with a waistband, a Kati Sutra, or with a waist rope. Yeah? You just tie it so that it presses around the navel, on the navel and around, left and right from it. 54 and 55 make it even more complicated, with, which are not necessary. When we do in Agama, we don't use this, for example. Rub the body with ashes. No, we won't get you naked and we won't rub your body with ashes. You can obtain Shakti Chalana in another way as well. So these are very peculiar countryside things from the yogis. Already in the 18th century, the Naga tradition, the Naga Baba tradition was very strong in India. And these were people who were living in the forest in the tropical climate of India, and they were dressing themselves in ashes. They had no clothes, and they smeared themselves in ashes. So this is a sort of a symbol, like I'm untamed, I'm wild, I live in the jungle, I have no house, I have no clothes, I gave given up the world, all I want is Kundalini Shakti to awaken in me, I'm, I'm a wild stallion, and I want to reach to God through my power, through my energy. It's a very ethnic thing, and I left it there, that's the way Geranda writes, Rub the body with ashes. Don't think that the ashes will facilitate the awakening of Kundalini. It's just a self-hypnotic, motivating thing like these Babas, when they go to Kumbha Mela every three years, they get naked and they rub their body with ashes so that everybody can see how wild and beautiful they are. Ultimately, it's just braggadocio. It's just shenanigans. It's just theatricals, you know, because it doesn't serve anything than showing off. You could as well dress properly and be humble and not show to anybody who you are if you don't want to show off. But there is a lot of showing off in that culture. So rub the body with ashes. Sit in Siddhasana. That's a concrete advice. Draw the prana through both nostrils and forcefully unite it with apana. This is as far as yoga texts go. Like They always come to this critical point and I've studied this description in about five to ten Kundalini Yoga texts or teachings. And they all of them say this, while they never really say what's happening. What does that mean? Draw the prana through both nostrils, like we do in pranayama, and forcefully united with apana, which is a, one of the five values of the body. And everybody is wondering, what's that? how do you unite it? How do you know you've succeeded in uniting it? Like, what, what's that? On purpose, nobody writes more. When you will study Kundalini Yoga with Agama, you will see that we tell you exactly what's happening and what's happening. There is a trick to it. And that trick is simply not spelled out in literature because 
they don't want people to get accidents or to go crazy or to have all sorts of other unpleasant things by simply stumbling over something which is not fully, 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 fully explained and guided on them. So all of them, this is what you find in all the books. I'm always smiling when I find it in the books because it's either a person who knows what he's talking about but he knows that he is not supposed to write more than that or it's a person who copied it from one of those and they think that's it. They say, draw the prana through your nostrils and unite it with apana. Oh, thanks for advice, mate. Let's do it. You know, just why don't you do it right now? Draw some prana through your nostrils and mix it with apana. Fantastic. Shakti Chalana Mudra is upon you. It's bollocks, of course, because you don't know exactly the trick of it. So this is how you make the difference between, like, always when we know what's happening in yoga, when we read literature, it's very easy to see that this person knows what they are talking about, and this person doesn't have a clue. They just copied it from somewhere, and they try to be smart. There is a guy in India, I, whatever, wherever he's coming from, who calls himself Svoboda, Robert Svoboda or something, who wrote three notorious books called Kundalini or Agori. Agori one. And then because it had so much success among the hippies and among the backpackers and among the rainbow people, of course he sold Agori number no. two and Agori number no. three. Always when I, when I read them, because I read them, say, okay, is this a new teacher emerging? Is this some new lineage? I was interested. Maybe I would know and meet the guy. When I, after I read the first volume, I knew. The guy simply copied from the 20 books on Tantra and Kundalini, which were published before his time, and he simply rewrote a new book by remixing the same things. And he made it sound interesting. Like the guy repeats all the stupidities and all the mistakes done by other authors before. You know, when somebody just carries on mistakes like this, it's obvious that they don't know what they are talking about. It's obvious that they didn't do it, because if they would have done it, they would have known that this was written wrong, accidentally or on purpose, once upon a time. So it's the same here. Draw the prana through both nostrils and forcefully unite it with apana, whatever that means. Contract the anus slowly by Ashvini Mudra. Ashvini Mudra will be described later. So funny, he should have described it in the beginning because he invokes it now. So as I say, he's not logical, he's not an engineer. Contract the anus slowly by Ashvini Mudra to be explained later until the Vayu enters the Sushumna Nadi and shines there. He says what is happening as a result of this. You mix the prana with apana, whatever that is. You squeeze your anus, and then somehow the energy will find a way of entering in the central channel, in the spine channel, in Sushumna Nadi, and shine there. Imagine that you have your spine like a neon, like a fluorescent tube along the spine and it shines, it's turned on, and now it shines. Your spine channel is glowing with energy. It's full, it's activated, it hums now. The, the explanation is very beautiful, an exception made of the fact that Geranda simply doesn't want to go into details about what's happened, how to do that practically. He obviously knows the process. So he says, mix the prana with apana, that is to be learned from your guru. Contract the anus slowly by Ashvini Mudra, which, oops, I forgot to mention, it comes later, don't worry. 
until the Vayu enters in Sushumna Nadi and it shines there. That's the purpose. And he continues, 56. Hold the breath, Kumbhaka, until the serpent power feels suffocated and rises upwards. It's a little bit like in Udhyana Banda, those who did the first level. No, like you don't breathe, you suck the belly, and then suddenly in that feeling you feel like, oh my God, I'm going to die, I have no oxygen, and suddenly <laughs> something is happening inside you. That something is produced here. You do all those things, and you do Ashvini Mudra, and then you hold your breath long, it says, until the serpent power feels suffocated, like until you feel you asphyxiate. You push the envelope a little bit, and then it rises. That's why they compare it with a snake. They say if you take a snake which is lazy, even if you stick it with a stick like this, it will be like a sleepy cat. It won't react. But if you hit it over the head, suddenly it's danger, and the adrenaline comes on, and the snake goes, it's immediately stirred up. So this kundalini is like a lazy snake. You have to hit it. You have to prod it a little bit. So that suddenly it goes like, what? You know, it's like it's coming up like in a furor, like this. That's why the process of Kundalini is a bit of an extreme process. That's why you have to learn it from a teacher. Kundalini Yoga is never taught through books because it has to be learned the proper way to avoid any accident or any bump on the road. It's not dangerous if it's done properly. Here in Agama, I'm telling you again, we teach, I teach Kundalini Yoga since 25 years. Never had the slightest problem with it with anybody. Because it's exactly like I'm an electrician and teach you electric installations. If I teach you right, you'll not get electroshocked and you'll not die. If you do it amateurishly, you might touch the wrong wire and electroshock yourself and get a heart attack and die. So the whole thing is not that in Kundalini Yoga, there's no room for amateurism and for stupid experiments. Everything has to be done by the book, then it's 100% safe. And he says in 57, without the Shakti Chalana, Yoni Mudra is not perfect or complete. Funnily enough, he described Yoni Mudra before, but now he says without the Shakti Chalana, the Yoni Mudra is not complete. Yoni Mudra is an excellent exercise for rising Kundalini, chakra to chakra, chakra to chakra. Here in Agama, of course, we teach it in the right order. In the 15th level, you learn Shakti Chalana. In the 16th level, you learn Yoni, because that's the correct order. First, you learn Shakti Chalana, because without it, you cannot do Yoni. In the Yoni Mudra, you have to practice Shakti Chalana Mudra included already. So it's a skill which should have been developed already. So see, here, Geranda makes very perfectly clear statements. He says, without the Shakti Chalana, Yoni Mudra is not complete. First, practice perseveringly the Chalana, the Shakti Chalana it means, and then the Yoni Mudra should be practiced. But in his book, he taught them in the reverse order. O Chanda Kapali, Shloka 58, that's the name of his disciple. O Chanda Kapali, thus have I told you about the great Shakti Chalana. Keep it secret. That's always in the yoga texts, all these powerful things. They are just an elite thing among the knowers, among the connoisseurs. Other people, they always say, leave them in the dark. If they don't want to learn properly about these things, don't talk about these big things. So keep it secretly and practice it perseveringly. That's 
the secret of practice. Practice, 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 and the results appear. This mudra 59, this mudra is very secret. It destroys decay and death. That's one of the obsessive themes for many mudras, for much of Kundalini work. The obsessive motive, the words which are used, are this destroys decay and death. By decay, they mean decadence of organs, old age, decrepitude, and death. These are like signs of success in Kundalini Yoga when it is done. So it's very secret. It destroys decay and death. The yogin who wishes for perfection, and again the word siddhi is used, meaning spiritual perfection or meaning paranormal abilities, it's not known. Both are involved in this word. So the yogin who wishes for siddhi, whatever that means, must practice it perseveringly. Any one of you wants spiritual perfection or paranormal things, Shakti Chalana is the first step to be practiced perseveringly. 60 and the last about Shakti Chalana. The yogin who practices this assiduously, which means heavily, heavy duty, perseveringly, reaches perfection, siddhi. Again, what perfection? Spiritual perfection or the siddhi of levitating in mid-air? Geranda doesn't mention. He's happy to leave it unclear so that it means both because some people are more interested in the spiritual part, some people are more interested in the paranormal part. So he says, the yogin who practices this, this Shakti Chalana, assiduously reaches perfection. He acquires Vigraha Siddhi and all his diseases are cured. Vigraha Siddhi, one of the meanings of it, look upon it, it is in your theory of Paschimottanasana and some others in the very first level intensive. It is mentioned in the effects of benefits. One of the meanings of Vigraha Siddhi is to obtain what you want that your wishes become reality. Graha, grahana, is means to grab, to catch things in your hand. And vigraha is like vishuddha, is extreme grabbing. Like it means you can get pretty much whatever you want because of the power, because of the enormous energy that you are triggering. He acquires vigraha siddhi and all his diseases are cured. Kundalini, when it is done right, like a shower of energy in the body and a lot of things are cured. I remember so many times when I would be sick, like having a flu, and I was an active Hatha Yoga teacher in those days and I had to go to classes. And I would just go to classes, I would do Shakti Chalana Mudra now and then, in the end of the class I would feel much, much better than in the beginning of the class, like the yoga class, just because of Shakti Chalana, it was a healing. It was simply taking all the disease out of my system. It was like burning it out of my system in this way. So it's a powerful statement. And this Shakti Chalana Mudra is like a big uh, introduction, a big cornerstone in Kundalini Yoga. It goes a bit slower than I expected. I looked at the clock. I won't finish the mudra chapter now, but next week, surely, uh, because there are a few, there are about three pages left here. But as I'm going with explanations and collateral comments, um, then it goes a bit slower than expected. The next on his list, he finished with Shakti Chalana Mudra, and I'm going to go through a couple of smaller ones. 
then I will not finish too late to keep you too late. The next on his list, we are still in chapter 3, Shloka 61, he goes on with the, what is called Tadagi Mudra. And actually you are going to find out with surprise that Tadagi Mudra, which is described in just one verse, actually sounds pretty much like Udhyana Banda. And therefore he describes rather Udhyana Banda here, but it's interesting to see how, in what context. He says Tadagi Mudra, sitting in Paschimottanasana, suck the belly upward so it resembles with a hollow tank. This is the great Tadagi Mudra, destroyer of decay and death. Basically here, he recommends a composite practice of Udhyana Bandha performed in Paschimottanasana, an asana with a Udhyana Bandha to it. And we already know that Paschimottanasana is giving a huge vitality and it can cleanse the back, the central channel, and it can extend the lifespan, and it's one of the most healing asanas of yoga, and he mixes it with one of the most powerful bandhas, the Udhyana Bandha, and he says, do Udhyana Bandha in Paschimottanasana, this is the destroyer of decay and death again. Powerful, healing, energizing practice of mixing up Udhyana with Paschimottanasana, nothing new, essentially, but you see that mixing the Lego game pieces together, sometimes you get new stuff coming out of those, such as here. And immediately he continues in two verses about the Manduki Mudra, which again, where you are going to find out that you have encountered it already, named something else. In the, uh, there are at least three different names for this, like Jiva Banda and other things in the yoga tradition. Manduki Mudra, Shloka 62. Close the mouth and move the tongue up and back towards the palate, towards the soft palate and the uvula rather. Slowly drink the nectar or amrita. This is Manduki Mudra. This makes allusion to a famous, famous theme in yoga where it says that the channels above the mouth and the channels below the mouth are separated, like there is a, a meridian in acupuncture which comes through the back, the top of the head, and down to the upper lip, and then there is another meridian which starts from the lower lip and goes down to the perineum. And those two channels here, they are not united because it's the upper lip and the lower lip, and the way to unite them is by poking the tongue up. When you poke the tongue up, you bridge between the two, and suddenly the energy which comes up this way can continue back down this way and go in a circuit, go into a microcosmic orbit, as the Taoists call it, and it creates a circle of energy in the body. This putting the tongue up is related with a lot of things, that there is a secret chakra in the area of the vault of the palate and the back of the palate, which is called Soma Chakra, and this chakra is associated with a body producing a mysterious body fluid, which some people think it's an energy, some people think it's a physical fluid, some people think it's an energy and a fluid at the same time, like a fluid impregnated with an energy, and that when you stimulate something in this area, such as putting the tongue up, putting the tongue back, sometimes as in Kechari Mudra, which I taught last year from Geranda, pushing the tongue back all the way behind the uvula, which is almost impossible for the normal person, you are going to stimulate some of these mechanisms and there is going to be a production of some hormones, enzymes, 
secret secretions which are related with rejuvenating the body, re related with psychedelic and psychoactive effects in the brain, and such things. This is a constant theme in yoga. And one of the most simple applications called in much of the rest of yoga, jiva bandha, the contraction of the tongue, is exactly this. Take the tongue up and join it to the palate. And if you can push it even further back than the palate, push it back and keep it there. Any one of you who will try to do this tongue things, you will see that if you try it for one week, the first reaction which you get is that your tongue gets painful, like when you do this massage, because it's difficult. The tongue is not used to contract in that funny way and to stay in that position, and you are getting like fever in the tongue. As you have muscular fever in some limbs, you are getting the equivalent of it in the tongue. And in the beginning, many people give up because they try to do it and they say, no, no, now meditation, now my concentration is taken away. I'm distracted. The tongue is suffering, this, that. And, but if you push over, if you are stubborn enough to push over, it becomes a second nature. If you have done this tongue things for a month, then you don't stop doing it because you get used to it. Eventually, the tongue, like any other muscle and organ in the body, can be trained and therefore it can get to do that. So basically it says close the mouth and move the tongue up and back towards the palate. Slowly drink the nectar. It basically intimates saying your tongue will get something. There will be some special saliva, some special juices, something which may come from behind the uvula, like from the pharynx as it is called medically and so on. It actually may come from much deeper than that, but I don't want to go into the technical details because there is a lot of unknown stuff and there is a lot of modern anatomic and physiological speculation about where this could go. For the yogis, they don't need the speculation. They just do it and then they enjoy the results. They see what's happening. So it says, slowly ding the nectar. This is Manduki Mudra. Manduka in Sanskrit is a frog. And the yogis have noticed that the frogs in the winter, in the places where there is a cold winter, in the north of India, in the Himalayas, the frogs don't die, but they hibernate. And when they took such frogs and looked at them with some childlike curiosity, they discovered by opening their mouth that these frogs had their tongue backwards. They had swallowed their tongue. And the yogis believe staunchly that this thing with turning the tongue will produce an effect like those in the frogs, and you can go in suspended animation, hibernation, low metabolic rate, states of trance, self-hypnosis, triggering the soma, the amrita, the, the fluids, the regenerative fluids of the body. There is a whole mysticism in yoga related with this. I know much more than this, and there is much more in the practice of yoga than this, but in a satsang, there is definitely not the place to lose ourselves into the tiny, many details of this. This you learn in classes, in lectures, in courses, because that's where each one of these technologies is taken one by one. So it simply says, this is the Manduki Mudra. This is the Mudra, or the gesture. Mudra means gesture, but it's not a gesture with the fingers. It's a gesture with the tongue and the body. This is the gesture of the frog. So, no, if I tell you, do like a frog, it means swallow your tongue, turn your tongue backward. That's how you do like a frog. 63, the person who practices Manduki Mudra 
never get sick or old. That's a pretty insane statement. Never get sick or like, no, then we get to the myths of Babaji and other, the masters of the East or something, people who live not a hundred years, 300, 800, 2,800 years, and who are able to violate the laws of nature by creating paranormal effect by which the life can be extended incredibly. So the, uh, these legends are perennial in yoga, and this text substantiated, like Garanda, either he saw it with his own eyes, or he heard about it from his teacher or from some other yogis. But Garanda obviously believes that if you do yoga from morning till evening, and you are not eating genetically modified food and uh, monosodium glutamate, and you don't ejaculate and lose your ojas, you are going to be able to never be sick or old. He says, if you practice Manduki Mudra, but that can mean day and night, never, you never get sick or old. Even enjoys perpetual youth, and his hair does not turn gray. Well, there are some of us that have gray hair, which obviously means we are not doing Manduki Mudra 24-7. Right? So the question in yoga is always, how far are you willing to get it? Please never forget that these were people living in the Himalayas with no job, no friends, no family, no nothing. They got their food for free. Their, their, their food was clean and simple. It was just some fruits from the trees. There were no pesticides. There were no fertilizers. There were no telephone towers, mobile telephone towers. There was no electricity. There were no uh, chemtrails from the airplanes. There was no food polluted by quicksilver or God knows what it is. People didn't get vaccinated or toxified with antibiotics. Like these people lived in a sort of utopian, simple, natural place. They ate little healthy food. They were 99.9% .9 vegetarian and sometimes even vegan. These people were doing yoga from morning till evening. They didn't have stress. They didn't have deadlines. There was nobody who was stepping on their toes in a bus or in a taxi. They were, they were not pissed off at anybody. They didn't have enemies. They didn't have obligations. They didn't have psychological pressure to compete with anybody. They didn't have to be perfectionistic or competitive or anything. These people were living a simple life, pretty utopian, pretty perfect. And if in the middle of this simple, pure life, they chose to do yoga 16 hours per day or 20 hours per day, you can imagine that some of them were reaching at some levels which are very hard to understand. That's why, although yoga today is not like this, like Swami Shivananda couldn't live his life like this, because he was a teacher and 100,000 people were pulling his clothes, saying, Swamiji, 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 but Swamiji, but Swami, you know, how can you do Matangini Mudra all day long and uh, eliminate old age? And when people, no, Yogananda went to America and taught Kriya Yoga to 100,000 people. It's like, okay, you don't, these people, they didn't fulfill that ideal. In Kali Yuga, the gurus that are public persons, they are sacrificed. They do Karma Yoga a lot. And they simply don't have the time and the state of mind and the purity. And a lot of things, you know, like, you know, if I'm in a hurry, 
I just go and buy a pizza or something, you know. No yogi at the time of Geranda had seen a pizza or eaten a pizza. They might have considered it shit food, no crap food. And therefore, today, in Kali Yuga, especially when we talk about the public domain of yoga, maybe some of you hears this, learns Agama for 5, 6, 10 years, and then maybe some of you will go in the jungle in the Himalayas and live 20 years in isolation and yoga, and then you are going to see that some of these things were not stupid. They actually did work, but they apply in very special conditions. Yoga, which you learn today in a studio or even in a school. No, you came to Agama. Agama is lovely located in a paradise island in the jungle. Yeah, but it's still 21st century and Kali Yuga. And when you are riding your motorbike, you are riding behind a car and you are inhaling all the fumes and crap which comes from the exhaust pipe of that truck in front of you. Nobody had even a minute of that when they lived in the Himalayas in the 18th century. So today, life and yoga implicitly has become very different. And if you really want to reproduce these conditions, then you have to become a hermit. Then you have to go far, far away from everything and everybody and find a life which resembles with this. And then if you have the stamina and the perseverance to do yoga from morning till evening, these things will start happening as in the books. But remember, these things were written by extreme people living in very peculiar conditions, and some of these things applied for them. So it's easy for him to say, the person who practices Manduki Mudra never gets sick or old, enjoying perpetual youth, and his hair does not even turn gray. It's not ridiculous. It's not impossible. It's just very, very far from the conditions in which we are today and here. You want, you have the internal power to create a change, create a change. No? It's like, this is one of our dreams in Agama, to get some deserted village in the north of Spain or something, and to create there some real yoga community, a hermitage, a place with maybe no electricity, but where people can do yoga 16 hours per day and test some of these things. The people that are cut for that, the people that have the, the stomach for this kind of thing, because it's not easy, and this is the, the real origin of yoga. And I'm going to stop here for tonight, because we go into a few mudras based on internal visualization. The next one will be in 64, the famous Shambhavi mudra, and you are going, which we teach Shambhavi Mudra with a ping pong ball here in the first level intensive, but you are going to see now when you compare it with Geranda Samhita that we are teaching a beginner's Shambhavi Mudra because the full-on Shambhavi Mudra, as explained here, is a rather difficult internal technique. So then you will see the standards set there. Next week, I hope that continuing with Shambhavi Mudra, and I'm not going to give explanations about Geranda and Geranda Samhita and all that, I can go straight into it. I am pretty much sure that next week I can conclude the chapter number three. Then we'll be ready to go to a very short chapter number four on Pratyahara, going deep, deeper in the system of yoga as conceived by Geranda. 
let us just calm down for a minute or two, going into a meditative, gentle state, just to make sure that all these things which have been said, they are absorbed in your deeper layers of the mind, and it was not just some stupid information coming in, information going out. So two minutes of silence and meditating on the third eye for absorbing, for balancing the hemispheres, for going deep. And with this, we will conclude the satsang for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.